where, but you get kind of get on the path and just keep going on the path, and that's all we're responsible for. Um, there are different ways of presenting this idea. One is the traditional Mahayana way, which is saying that basically nirvana is not different from samsara, and the path is the way to show how you can continue going in samsara and seeing samsara as nirvana, or seeing that there's no difference between the two. Um, the image that the, the Pali Canon gives is the path as a raft going across the river. The Mahayana version in the Diamond Sutra says that you actually have to let go of the raft to get across the river. You don't wait until you get across the river and then let it go. You let it go to get across, which I've never seen a raft work that way. But <laughs> so, um, Throughout the canon, the Buddha gives analogies. You, know, you get to the other side of the river, you don't need the raft. But as you're crossing across the river, you've got to hold on to the raft. Um, again, this is a point we'll talk about a little bit more in, the, in a few minutes. Um, other, other analogies in the canon. It's a road through a jungle getting to a city. And you, it's the path. Following the path is like getting, coming to a cow. You want milk out of the cow. You know what to, which part of the cow to squeeze. And you're not squeezing the cow because you just like squeezing the cow. You squeeze the cow because you want to get the milk. Okay. okay. So that's one version of the, the path as equal to the goal. There's a traditional uh, Theravada scholarly version of identifying the path with the goal, although it identifies one part of the path, saying that we practice the path in order to arrive at right view. And once you've reached right view, okay, that's, that's what you've accomplished. That's the goal. Um, but there are many passages in the canon that said, as in, in line with that image of the raft, once you've, discernment has done its work, once right view has done its work, even at awakening you have to let go even of discernment, even of the wisdom that got you there. Um, there are several passages in Deacon Nagaya 1. There's another one in um, Singerton Nagaya 48.5, where they said that the Arahant has to see the escape from the five faculties, one of which is discernment. So you use these faculties, and then you get to the point where you put them aside. So right view is not the goal. Um, there's a secular version of the path is the goal teaching, which is basically denies that there is any transcendent dimension. That when they talk about going to the deathless, it's simply living in the, mo- in the present moment with no idea that there's any self to die. And therefore, no, no thought of self to die, no death. Which might work as a linguistic trick, but I don't think the Buddha was a tricky person. Um, I mean, he talks about how it is, it is another dimension entirely, totally beyond the senses. Um, and that's what, we're, that's what we're aiming at. And then finally, there's the, the question as to um, the canon talks about. Excuse me, I'm going to go back a little bit. The, the, the modern secular version is also that the path is basically one of just letting go, letting go, letting go. I was giving a talk recently in in Cambridge. Um, the director of the, the center, Larry Rosenberg, had asked me to give a talk. He said a lot of people come now to mindfulness practice having gone through MBSR. And you know, they hear about all the benefits of MBSR, you know, your, your blood pressure goes down, and your work goes better, and your sex life goes better, and all these other things. And so who needs insight? You know, we've got all these benefits. So he asked me to give a talk on what's good about insight. And so I talked a little about insight. And a lot of the people in the questions afterwards were saying, you know, but we're told that insight is just letting go. How can you live letting go? An image I've heard that one Dharma teacher say is that it's like you're learning how to relax your hand. Once your hand is relaxed, it naturally relaxes, so there's no real effort in you just kind of let go of things. 
and your hand. But my idea, if a hand is relaxed and it doesn't do anything, then it's not a live person's hand. It's a dead hand. The, the hand has to relax and to, to grab in order to function. In the same way with the path, the, the Buddha said there is an, an element of abandoning, but also things you have to develop in order to get to where you want to go. You can't just say, I'm going to clone awakening and let go. There are qualities that you have to develop in order to get to the point there, then you can let go. We'll talk about this later also in the day, that there are things that you have to develop, and this is one of the images of the path. You develop all the factors of the path, they take you to a part, place where when you let go, you let go into the deathless and not just letting go back into where you were before. Um, there are some modern analogies about this, this point. Um, one, you take the road to the Grand Canyon. The road to the Grand Canyon does not look like the Grand Canyon, especially if you drive in from Flagstaff. It's flat and nothing, you know, for miles. Um, there's the other road to the Grand Canyon when you come in from the east and you go along the little Grand Canyon. It looks pretty nice. You say, oh, just, this, this must be the Grand Canyon. It's a canyon, it's big. But then when you get to the Grand Canyon, you realize, oh, it's a lot bigger than the little Grand Canyon. So the road doesn't necessarily replicate the goal. Um, John Cha has a nice analogy. He says, it's like you're coming back from the market carrying a banana. And someone asks you, why are you carrying the banana? And you say, I'm going to eat it. And then they ask you, why? Are you going to eat the peel too? No. Then why are you carrying the peel? <laughs> and of course the answer is, well, you need the peel in order for the banana not to turn into mush in your hand. So but then when the time comes to let go of the peel, you let go of the peel. Okay. Um, and John Lee has a nice image. He says a lot of people just want to let go, let go right from the very beginning. He said there's a difference between letting go like a pauper and letting go like a rich person. You develop his image, you know, if you're a rich person and you have a Cadillac and you let it go, means, okay, people in the neighborhood have a Cadillac to use. If you're a pauper, you don't have a Cadillac, say, let go of my Cadillac. Nobody has any Cadillac to use at all. Um, so nobody benefits from that kind of letting go. So the things you have to develop first and then you let go. So the path is not just a cloning awakening or an awakened way of being. It's a way that you have to work at in order to get you to the point where awakening can actually happen. Um, so, we are, we are talking about a path that goes someplace, and once you get there, it's a really good place to be. Finally, the question about whether the factors of the path are right. Um, this comes down to the old idea, is there is no right and wrong. There are four versions of this argument. One is just the Mahayana rejection of dualities. Um, then you, the, the enlightened person goes beyond dualities. The response here is, what's wrong with dualities? especially if you're dealing with things that cause suffering and things that don't cause suffering, that's an important distinction. And the Buddha constantly says, you know, it's a, it's a universal truth for everybody. There's some actions are skillful and other actions are not. And that's a duality that you have to hold to in order to, to get the results that you want. Um, there's a romantic rejection of ideas of right and wrong, um, which Again, right and wrong are considered to be narrow th ways of thinking, and when they try to translate the word samma, which means right in Pali, as harmonious, well, samma in Pali is actually contrasted with micha, which doesn't mean unharmonious, it means just out and out wrong. Um, and what, is the, what does it mean for a factor to be right? Think about getting milk from the cow. As the Buddha says, there are right and wrong places to squeeze the cow to get the milk. 
And it's not like he's just coming up and inventing the idea of right and wrong. But if you, you know, squeeze the horn, you twist the horn, you're not going to get milk out of the cow. And on top of that, you're harassing the cow. Um, if you squeeze at the udder, you get the milk. So it's, it, these factors are right because they lead to the results that you want. There's a postmodern critique of the idea of right and wrong, basically saying that the path, as we're taught it, is a map, and all maps distort. They're culturally conditioned, and they're usually convented for the purpose of gaining power over others. And the response here, of course, is that some maps distort more than other maps. And even though there's no way that the Buddha could describe how your path to awakening is going to go in every single detail, he points out these are the important things to know. For instance, think of a map that you get in a hotel room where it says, if there's a fire, this is how you get out. Now that map is not there to get power over you, it's there to help you. And secondly, you don't expect it to give you every detail. You know, what's the color of the rug on the, on the floor and what's the, you know, how many doors are going to be? It's like this, you go here and you turn left here, you turn right there, you get out. That's the kind of map that the path is. There may be distortions in the, fact, in the fact that your path may not look precisely like it does in the canon, but the, the path as it's described gives you all the basic information you need to know. Because remember, there are things you've got to keep in mind as you practice, and you have too many things to keep in mind, it just clutters the mind up. And finally, there's one other issue about the word sama. Um, some scholars have rejected the, they don't like the idea when right concentration is defined as jhana, and they try to find other ways of defining right concentration. And they've come across the fact that the word samma in Pali is related to the word samyak in Sanskrit. And the word samyak in Sanskrit means not only right, but also included in. And so the argument here was that, well, the Buddha is simply saying that concentration is included in the path. Well, that can be any kind of concentration. But then if that applies to concentration, it means it applies to views and res resolves and actions, and other, which means that, okay, views are included in the path and actions are included in the path and so on down, which doesn't give you any information at all. It could be any view, anything. But again, the Buddha never uses the word samma in his description of the path to make not included, and doesn't contrast it with not included in. It basically means right. Being against right because it works. Okay. So, here I've spent how many minutes? 20 minutes talking about it is a noble eightfold path with right factors. <laughs> As for the issue of the middle way, it's said to be a middle way between indulgence and sensuality and indulgence and self-affliction, which is, suggests that the factors are not only right but also just right, that it's a fine-tune between two extremes. But the question is, what are the extremes and what is that point of fine-tuning in the middle? Um, are the pleasures and pains of the path middling pleasures and pains? Are they neutral? Do they require a neutral passive accepting state, which I've seen many times. When I was in Brazil recently, that was the question. You know, I know Buddhists are supposed to be passive. I said, wait a minute, no. <laughs> Let's stop the question right there. Um, so the question is, what kind of middle is the Buddha talking about as he describes the factors of the path? And for an answer to that question, we have to look at the factors sort of one by one and see what they are, one how they're related to one another and what each factor contains. And then we'll get back to the question at the end of the day as to what kind of middle are we talking about here in this middle way? Are there any questions about that so far? So, um, just where along the history of Buddhism um, did this thought sway to Mahayana 
Like what was, why did the argument even come up that there had to be some other teaching with off course? Um, to make it as simple as possible, the question came, how do you become a Buddha as opposed to how do you become an Arahant? That was it. That, that was, was the question. The that was the question. And the question was, you know, the, um, you know, the Buddha never talked about how he became a Buddha in his previous lifetimes. And what did he do to become the guy who became Buddha as opposed to somebody else becoming Buddha? He never talks about that. However, the, there are a couple of Jataka stories that are included in the suttas. And as the tradition developed, they started assembling more and more and more Jataka stories to say, oh, the Buddha was, oh, the Buddha was a hero of this story and the Buddha was a hero of that story. And it was kind of collecting a lot of Indian folk, st- folk tales. It's kind of like saying Paul Bunyan was a previous incarnation of the Buddha, you know, if you try to sell it to Americans. <laughs> and so people started looking into those tales to see, okay, what were the virtues that um, the heroes in these different stories developed? Those are the virtues of the Buddha. And they came down with a list. The Sarvastivadins came with a list of six. The Theravadins came with a list of ten. But you look at the list, you know, it's you know, virtue, generosity, wisdom, equanimity, goodwill. I mean, these are all things that arahants have to develop as well. So then the question became, is, is there a difference between the Buddha's perfections and an arahant perfections? Are they different in quantity or quality? In other words, is the Buddha just more generous, more virtuous, but basically generous in the same way, virtuous in the same way, wise in the same way, just more so? Or is there a qualitative difference? Was his wisdom a different kind of wisdom? And there were two answers that came up. One answer was it was quantitative, that the Buddha just had more wisdom, you know, the same kind of wisdom that Arahants had, and so forth down the line. The other answer was, well, wait a minute, if, you, if it's just quantitatively different, what keeps, you know, you, when he reaches the level of an Arahant, what's to keep him from just zipping off to be an Arahant instead of continuing on to be a Buddha? And that's where the whole idea of the, the Bodhisattva vow came in. He made a vow that would keep him going. That was one answer. The other answer was, it's qualitatively different. Arahants believe that things arise, see that things arise and pass away. The Bodhisattva thinks that things don't arise and they don't pass away. And that's where the split really came, that the teaching had to be qualitatively different. And then, of course, and, and there's right and wrong. Well, there's no right and wrong. I mean, it's, it's a qualitatively different kind of insight they were, they were preaching. So from that point on, all the Mahayana arguments wherever they went culturally in the different countries shifted to let's figure out what that qualitative difference, what the qualitative difference was. And then the explanations of this is what that means. Mm-hmm. All the way you know, through Zen or Tibetan that these were qualitative. That's a shorthand way of saying it, yeah. Okay. Sama. Mm-hmm. One, one monk said, who has a background in music said that it's also a term in Pali related one of its meanings is tuning instruments, tuning your zitar or your aodas. It says that also in the, in the PTS dictionary. Right, one, you know, right, one yeah. among all these different. Mm-hmm. So, and, and it was a nice image because he, he made the point that it's, uh, they all have to be in tune, all eight. Mm-hmm. It's like an orchestra where everyone's in tune except the oboe, right? Mm-hmm. And you, it, it doesn't work when mm-hmm. that happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's the, there's the analogy of the monk who plays, the, or the monk who used to play the lute before he was a monk. Yeah, you know, he has to tune things to the right level. Yeah. But it has, that, that image there is more has to do with how much effort are you capable of doing. 
at any one particular point in time. And then you tune the rest of your practice to how much energy you have. Five, five whatnots. Right. Mm -hmm. Yes. Jeff, you pass it back to I'm terribly confused. Mm -hmm. um, in uh, some of the times I've heard you talk about the middle way, um, I have the impression, for example, in the Ananda Sutta, that it's the middle between um, annihilationism and uh, its opposite. Mm -hmm. In the, mm -hmm. can't pronounce it, it begins with a K, the Korra Sutta. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a similar distinction, and that leads into dependent co-arising. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. So it seems the Buddha, when he's talking about the middle way, is uh, positioning himself as... Um, uh, something other than the extreme views of the of the people that were teaching at the same period mm -hmm. of time. Okay. And, that's, and, that's one use of it, yes. But the other one, the, the one he starts out, when he, in the first, first sermon, he, this is how he introduces the noble path to the world. It's middle way between indulgence and sensuality and indulgence and self-affliction. It has different meanings in different contexts. So let's move on to the, the factors of the path. The factors of the path are described as a group in two different ways, in, in terms of the relationships among them. One is strictly linear. You start out with right view, and that leads to right resolve, which leads to right speech, which leads to right action, right livelihood, right mindfulness, right excuse me, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. Um, for example, when you start with right view, then you realize, okay, based on right view, I have to look at the way I live my life and how I engage with other people so that I can carry right view through the way I engage with other people. So that means you want to, you see that there's problems caused by sensuality, there's problems caused by thoughts of ill will, there are problems caused by being harmful, so you resolve to go past those things. So that's one way right view leads to right resolve. From right resolve goes to right speech in the sense, okay, and I, in, in the way I speak to other people has to embody this principle of not harming, not lusting after sensuality, not having ill will, and so on down the line. Um, and John Sawat's explanation of the relationship from right speech to right action was interesting. He says, if you make up your mind you're not going to lie, then you have to be very careful about what you do. <laughs> Because people might ask you, what did you do? <laughs> so, so. so that's one way of explaining the, factor, the factors of the path or the relationships. Um, the other one, they say that you start with each of the factors, but you have right view, right effort, and right mindfulness re circle around all the other factors of the path. In other words, right view tells you what's right view and what's wrong view, what's right resolve, what's wrong resolve. Based on that, you have mindfulness that remembers that you have to develop the skillful side and abandon the unskillful side. Now notice that. That's how mindfulness is defined in here. It's not just allowing things. It's remembering that you have skillful things to develop and unskillful things to let go of. And the right effort is what actually does the effort to develop the skillful and let go of the unskillful. So you have these three factors revolving around every one of the factors. What's interesting that in both of the patterns, right view comes first. This means that it must inform each of the factors. And as we'll see, there are three levels of right view. 
So in other words, right view informs right resolve, it informs right concentration, and so forth. But there are three levels of right view. They're developed as the path develops, which means that the relationship among the factors is not just one way. It's reciprocal. In other words, you have some right views that inform your efforts to, say, engage in right speech. But as you're engaging in right speech, you come up with issues. You know, your friend comes up, she's wearing an ugly dress, and she asks, how do I look? Now, you don't want to lie. You don't want to offend your friend. What do you say? You can't lie and say you look wonderful in the dress, or the dress looks wonderful. You can think, well, it's better, it's better that she's dressed than she's not dressed. Okay. <laughs> but you have to come up with, you know, you have to come up with an answer pretty quickly. Um, the issue came up in France when I was teaching there. The, they were saying this, this precept against drinking. Does it apply just to drinking in excess or just to drinking at all alcohol? And I said, all alcohol. The next day. You have to understand, in France, if someone offers you a glass of wine and you don't accept the glass of wine, that's an insult. So we're going to have to change this precept to fit in with French culture. <laughs> and so my response was, I'm sure that even in France, if you tell your friend that your doctor says no alcohol, the friend would understand. Now, you don't have to say who your doctor is. <laughs> or what disease the doctor is treating. The Buddha is traditionally regarded as a doctor, so you're, you're safe. Um, third day, okay, on the table, bread fresh out of the oven, crusty and warm, piece of camembert au point, um, a bottle of pomard, which I'd never heard of before, but apparently it's a really expensive wine, open and ready to pour. I consult my doctor. Would he recommend Coke Light? <laughs> My response was the Buddha was not an American capitalist. He'd recommend San Pellegrino. <laughs> so, in order to maintain your precepts, you have to think quickly on your feet. And so, in learning to think quickly on your feet, that develops your discernment in a practical way. So, we're moving from discernment on the theoretical level, what in the, in the canon is called Suttamayapanya, the discernment that comes from listening or the discernment that comes from thinking. You have to develop the discernment that comes from developing. In other words, getting your hands dirty as you work on the path, you begin to realize, this works, this doesn't work. You may have some preconceived notions as you go in, but as you work with the precepts, you begin to realize you're developing your discernment. As you work with your concentration, as you work with your mindfulness, you're developing your discernment. So it goes back and it develops your right view even further. So that's going to be the theme of today's, on today's presentation, is we're going to look at how look at how right view informs each of the factors, and then in turn how right view gets developed by each of the factors, what they contribute to, to your discernment to further it along. Um, in all cases, one of the lessons that you learn as you're putting the path into practice is the extent to, is how cause and effect work in your life, and particularly the cause and effect around what, around what Buddha calls fabrication, your intentional element as you approach your life. The, intentions that you bring to your present experience, how do they come back? And how do you detect when you're doing it skillfully, when you're doing it not? And that way you find more and more the extent to which you really are shaping your experience. In fact, one of the insights of, that comes with awakening is that your intentions come prior to sensory input. If you look in dependent core arising, they talk about fabrication comes prior to the six senses. 
and you find that inexperience, that's actually how it is. If you didn't have the intention to engage in the senses, there would be no engagement with time, time or space at all. And so we're getting more and more sensitive to what we are bringing into our, into our lives, into our experience, from moment to moment. The Buddha identifies three kinds of fabrication. I want you to keep these in mind as we go through the day. The first is bodily fabrication, your breath. The second is verbal fabrication, which is the way you direct your thoughts to topics and evaluate them. That's why directed thought and evaluation come up later in the practice of concentration. But to put it in, in simple terms, when you make up your mind, you're going to think about something, and then you how you talk to yourself about it. Those are verbal fabrications. And then there's what called, what's called mental fabrication, which are perceptions of the labels you place on things, and then feeling tones. Feeling tones of pleasure, pain, neither pleasure nor pain. And perception here is particularly important. It's kind of like the, the mind's quick telegraphs from one part of the mind to another. With a word comes up or a vision, vision comes up, you know, you're dealing with your boss and all of a sudden you see this monster from your childhood you know, come flashing in your mind. And it, it's going to color your relationship with the boss. Um, it's kind of like subliminal messages on TV. You know, they flash these things. This is one of the reasons you don't want to watch Fox News, okay? You know that little white space they have above the heads of the news, newscast people? They actually flash messages on those. I don't want to get any further than that. Um, but the mind does that to itself. And you have to be quick to see, what are the perceptions I'm bringing to this situation? You know, it might be memories, it might be whatever. It can be a word, it can be a visual image. These things will influence then how you think about the issue and how you also engage with the other person. All of these things are coming prior to the way you engage in the world. And as the Buddha said, if you do this in ignorance, you're going to suffer. If you do it with knowledge, it becomes part of the path. In other words, if you, your knowledge is informed by the Four Noble Truths, I'm going to do this skillfully. I want to bring skillful perceptions. I want to bring skillful thoughts. I even want to breathe skillfully as I'm going through this, whatever situation is. That will change the way um, you experience things. And so a lot of what the lessons that you're going to learn as you bring the various factors into, into action is exactly how strong is this fabrication. You learn how to take apart your unskillful mind states into these kind of fabrications and reassemble them in a way that makes them more skillful. Any questions on that? Yes, Mike. I have trouble understanding the difference between a mental-verbal fabrication and a mental fabrication. Mental fabrications are more like individual words, and verbal fabrications are more like complete sentences. Yeah. Thanks. It's like monster, but verbal fabrication says, this monster is going to eat me. <laughs> or, this is a stupid image to have, I don't want to do that. So you can, the verbal fabrication can help correct or counteract a metal fabrication, if you're aware of what's happening. Yeah. So, the craving and the ignorant, or the craving and the hatred, seem to be pretty self-explanatory when we're working the path. We can see, I can see, oh yeah, I, I want that. That's a craving, or I, I feel some hatred or ill will. It's the ignorance that's the real challenge. So maybe throughout the day, I was wondering if you could 
point out ways of you know seeing that periphery. Okay, you have to make a distinction between ignorance and delusion. Delusion is just basically misinformation about things in general. Seeing things, you know, in the wrong way. You know, your wife comes up to you and she's pleasant and you, somehow you see she's doing this to trick me. You know. Yeah, that, that's, that's, that may be, delu- may be delusion, I don't know. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Ignorance is when you don't look at things in terms of the Four Noble Truths. And that can be seeing things, I mean, you, you can have correct information about things, but you're not interpreting them in that lens. The lens of, to get past ignorance, you've got to see, okay, where is the stress or suffering here? What's causing that? What can I do to put an end to that? Bring those questions to it. Rather than you know, there's lots of information out there which is, you know, perfectly not diluted, but it is ignorant from the Buddhist point of view. There seem to be varying layers of that. Right. Mm-hmm. So you can have some insight. I think we've, we've mentioned this, but, but that's, um, say, like a middle insight. It's not a Four Noble Truths insight. So it seems difficult in the course of a day mm-hmm in your in conversation or something to get to that way, where is the suffering? Because there are multiple levels of suffering that we're going through. Okay, well, there, um, there, there's, there's the suffering that you're causing yourself and there's the suffering that's just kind of there. The fact that you've got a body, there's going to be pain, there's going to be issues with the body. The fact that you live in a society where, I don't know, I'm not going to mention politics, um, <laughs> where we have politics, um, it's very uncertain. But then the, the, the extent to which you are suffering from that comes from your craving and ignorance. And that's the point where the Buddha wants to focus on. That's, that's, that's the part of the mind, or the part of your awareness that he wants to train. So if I'm understanding correctly, uh, so you're talking to your boss and all of a sudden a monster pops into your head. That's not a voluntary thing. Mm-hmm. It just happens. Mm-hmm. And then the verbal fabrication is the story you tell about that. Right. Is that correct? That couldn't be happened. Although you may decide before you go into talking to your boss, you, did you have the, you know you have this habit of flashing monster, monster, monster while you're talking to him. And you've got to tell yourself, I've got to re-educate my perceptions. And you have to sit yourself down. It's almost like, almost like talking to yourself and saying, look, he's just a human being. She's just a human being. Um, and there are ways that, you know, that my boss has certain issues. I have to learn how to deal skillfully with those so that I don't flare up. Yeah, I'm starting to try to do that before I get on the freeway. You do that, yeah. And that's actually, I mean, it's, we tend to think of meditation as something you do and you're just being in the present moment. But there's an important part of right effort that the Buddha says you have to prevent unskillful things from arising before they arise. And so, you know, at the end of your meditation, you say, okay, I'll give five minutes to strategizing how I'm going to deal with my boss. You're coming out of meditation, your mind is clearer, more calm. And you're in a better position to see, okay, what would probably work and what probably would not work. That's a legitimate use of your time. Thanks. So, um, you just said this the word in a sentence. <clears throat> so, watch uh, the implies time. The, the verbal actually implies time, implies playing out through time as, as a sentence. It can be pretty and, quick sentences. And... Then the mental can be more structural, like 
complexes of ideas that all appear at once? Or? It can be complex ideas, it can be very simple things that just kind of flash into the mind, a perception. You know, sometimes a perception will carry a whole thought world or a whole world of assumptions with it. Although it's interesting that you know, the same image will have different you know, associations in one place and another. You, here in America, you flash Hitler on the TV screen, a lot of associations go immediately with that. Uh, one of the things I learned about the difference of cultural background when I went to Thailand, and I was back in 1972, and I was talking to some of my students over there, and I said, oh yeah, Hitler, he got the trains in Germany to run on time. <laughs> That's Hitler. <Italy. laughs> no, well, that was Hitler too. I mean, oh. <laughs> so, he so, pulled Germany together. I mean, so, the, so the, that was so, a whole different world of associations. Right. So the mental and verbal are very closely related. They, right. they interchange all the time, when, and there's something there, and when you start to take it apart or follow something, then you're doing this, the verbal. And the bodily is also impl- is all implicated. You think a certain thought and your breath tense up immediately. Mm-hmm. And this is one of the reasons why we work with the breath, to begin with, it kind of gets us out of our mental worlds, back into, well, what is, it, what is this thinking doing to my body? And maybe I can change, you know, if I change the way I breathe, mm-hmm. it'll have a different, I'll think in different ways. Uh, you started out by um, viewing explain one view of the Eightfold Path as a linear path, cause and effect, and then another way of viewing it is sort of interactive with mm-hmm. right view, right effort, right mindfulness affecting all the other factors. And I think in uh, some of your books, I think, I'm thinking of Wings of Awakening, you described also a holographic that second, The second one is a holographic. I got it. Okay. Thank you. Where's the closest mic here? Hi, John. Uh, uh, can you speak to uh, how, what kind of fabrication the Noble Eightfold Path itself is? Yep. Mm-hmm. Skillful. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, but is it uh, uh, mental fabrication, verbal, or? All of the above. All okay. of the above. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, and uh, uh, in, in the use of the, uh, the three fabrications, uh, how, how are, can, can you, will you, Hopefully, you'll probably talk about it. How will you, will you talk about, uh, is it the right view uh, and mindfulness and effort that are coming together? Is that the way it is to and be then seen? When, or when is you it focus on the breath, you've got, you're dealing with bodily fabrication. Remember, the Buddha's instructions on breath meditation start with you know, being sensitive to the whole body and then calming bodily fabrication. That's an, a very important step. So that's an important step of the path, is being with the breath. And John Lee has a nice explanation of the path in which all of the factors are related to how you breathe. Okay. One more question on this. Um, if I may, uh, maybe uh, related to uh, dependent quarters, co-arising. Uh, there is one, the initial part of the dependent co-arising which says that fabrication is dependent on ignorance. Is that only unskillful fabrication that is dependent on uh, that is that, that is dependently co-arising from ignorance, or is it? You find when 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 ignorance is totally abandoned, there will be no no fabrication. No fabrication at all. Now then, the arahants can come back and then still fabricate, but it's done in a different way. And how they do it, the Buddha never explains, <laughs> I because see. it's none of our business. <laughs> I.e., we can't clone it, but we know that, okay, 
fabricating in a skillful way will get us to that point. And when you get to that point, you'll know for yourself how to fabricate without any karmic consequences. I see. Okay. So it's all about, this whole path is about learning to fabricate in such a way that we reach a point of perfection, say, so to, so to speak. Reach a point where things, it opens up to another dimension. Another dimension, okay. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Yes. So in this set of three, where do emotions belong? Okay, emotions would come under the whole, the whole complex. Because when you have an emotion, you're breathing in a different way, it's just a strong emotion, your breath is being affected by it, the way you're talking to yourself is being affected by it, the images that are flashing through your mind, the feelings in the body and the mind, these, that's how you make up an emotion. And it may seem kind of you know, surgical to say, I've got to take that apart. But if it's a really unskillful emotion, you're going to see, okay, well, how am I breathing? What are the perceptions I'm holding in mind? And so forth down the line. This is one of the reasons why the Buddha uses so many analogies in his talks. He says, this is like this and this is like that, to give you new perceptions. Because like when you're angry at somebody, you're, so their underlying perception is, I, I could smush that person out like an ant, you know. And the Buddha said, no, don't hold that perception. He says, you have to think of yourself as a person crossing a desert. You're hot, you're trembling, you're thirsty. You come across a little bit of water in a cow's footprint. Now, you need that water. In other words, you have to keep remembering. You, ha you have to look for the good in other people because your own goodness otherwise starts to, starts to die. So you want to hold that perception in mind. And so you, you, know, you can't scoop it up, so you have to get down and slurp up the water. Now, it's not a very dignified position. I'm all for slurping up water out of a cusp, but you need it. So even though you feel, well, it's beneath me to you know, look for the good in that person, still, I should do that. And so you want to hold that perception in mind. The other most famous one, of course, is the one where the Buddha says, even if bandits pin you down and they are sawing off your limbs with a two-handled saw, you should not have ill will for them. Okay? So, someone in your life comes up and says something nasty and snide to you. You remind yourself, they're not pinning me down and sawing off my limbs. <laughs> Uh, you mentioned that uh, uh, we have to practice to have a right view. Mm -hmm. So how do we know that we have a right view and who judges to be right? What, what the judge is basically your own ability to test, well, what are the results of holding to this view? And if you're not Sometimes. sure, you, and if you're not sure, you, I mean, there should be a good teacher. If you can consult with a good teacher, you can kind of get advice. But it's, it's like developing any skill. If someone says, you know, I really want to play the piano, how do I know when I'm playing really well? And they say, well, you, play, you sit down and you make a lot of mistakes. But after a while, you, your ear develops, and your fingers develop, and your sensitivity develops. And that's how it gets more and more right. Again, this is where the image of just right is very useful. And you're tuning things in. Uh, so you mean that is, uh, I myself do the judgment? Yeah, and you have to train yourself to be good at judging, too. And that's why you do the rest of the path. What's especially right, right, mindfulness and concentration are really going to be helpful to get you more sensitive to what you're doing and what the results are. And that's how they feed back in and, and develop your right view even further.
Thank you. Mm -hmm. Let's move on. Otherwise, we'll never get... <laughs> we'll have only a three-fold path. <laughs> okay, right view. There are three levels to right view. Um, two are given names in the canon. There's mundane right view and noble right view. But however, there's a third one that the Buddha also talks about, which is the right view on the verge of awakening. And it's good to notice that there are these three levels. Mundane right view is basically right view concerning karma and rebirth, um, and the way the Buddha expresses it. Right view is there is what is given, there is what is offered, there is what is sacrificed. There is the fruit and result of good and bad actions. There is this world and the next world. There is mother and father. There are spontaneously reborn beings. There are, which is basically beings born in heaven and hell. And there are Brahmins and contemplatives who, faring rightly and practicing rightly, proclaim this world and the next after having known it directly and realized it for themselves. This is a basically a statement of conviction and the principle of karma and rebirth. Um, let's go down some of this. Most of us, when we first hear about karma, the thought is, uh-oh, I'm going to get it. <laughs> we think about all the bad things we did in the past we thought we got away with, and it's, karma is telling us we're not going to get away with it. That's not how the Buddha taught it. Yes? This is on page four. Very bottom of page four. And he starts out by saying, there is what is given. Now this may seem kind of obvious. You see somebody giving something else, and yeah, there's what is given. But the Buddha's talking about to an issue that was raised in his time that someone said, you know, actually nobody gives anything. And the meeting here basically came down to two things. One was that people don't have freedom of choice. So when someone gives something to somebody else, it, was, it has nothing to do with their virtue. It's simply that the forces of the universe determined that this was going to have to be given, which means that the act of giving is meaningless. And then secondly, the people who said there, there was nothing given, there were the ones who said, there is no life after death. You give something to somebody, but it's all going to go to waste anyhow. So why bother? Now partly this was a reaction, <coughs> excuse me, Balaji, it was a reaction to the Brahmins, <laughs> who were in charge of um, all kinds of ceremonies in those days. And one of the ceremonies they were in charge of was making merit for your dead relatives. And there came a point in the ceremony where they would turn to the, the people who were holding the ceremony and they'd say, we are now speaking in the voice of your dead relatives. Give to the Brahmins. <laughs> and it was written into the text after the, after the donors gave to the Brahmins and the Brahmins had to say, give more. <laughs> and so you can imagine after a couple millennia of this, people started to react. And there people say, no, there's no virtue in giving to Brahmins at all. And from that it went, there was no virtue in giving, period. Now the Buddha comes along and says, there is what is given. So the implications are two. One is you have freedom of choice. That when you're giving something, it really does mean something. You could have not given it, but you decide, I am going to give it to this person. Particularly, he's talking about times when you give, not because it's Christmas or a birthday, but you give because you want to give. There's an impulse. You know, I, I have this thing, that other person lacks it. I think it would be really good to give it to that person, or I want to give it to that person. It's good to think back, you know, when you were a child, what was the first time you actually spontaneously gave something to somebody? That was your first expression, of, first experience of freedom. You could have not given it, but you gave it. You're free from that particular greed to keep. 
and the Buddha's, the, the Buddha has lots of ways of protecting that the value of that first giving the value of that desire to give spontaneously when someone asked him where, sh- where should a give, gift be given he said give where you feel inspired and this is a principle that applies to material gifts where you feel inspired or where you feel it be well used or well taken care of and this is a principle that would apply not only to material gifts but also gifts of your time you want to get involved. Nowadays we say if you want to get involved in a social action program, give where you feel inspired. Give of your time, give of your energy. There are no shoulds here. So the Buddha protects your freedom around that choice of when and where to give. Um, The statement, there is no mother, no father. Again, this is basically a value statement saying that your parents, because they were, you know, they were forced by by events to give birth to you and care for you, it has no meaning. It's totally meaningless what they did for you. Therefore, you don't have to feel any debt of gratitude to them. <clears throat> the Buddha is saying, no, if you, if you have freedom of choice, your parents could have put you out in the trash bin. And in their cases, where it happens. But they didn't. So the fact that you're alive, you owe something to your parents. Your mother could have aborted you. And they could have just said, enough of this crying infant. Let's just get rid of them. But they didn't, so you have a debt of gratitude to them. And this, is, this basically comes from the principle of karma, that people do have freedom of choice. That's what karma is all about, is that you have a choice to act skillfully or unskillfully. And the fact that people act skillfully is something to be treasured. And so you, you treasure your desire to give, you treasure the goodness people have done for you. And these things have meaning because you do have freedom of choice. Now, karma is often rejected because it seems to be very deterministic, but the Buddha is actually teaching the opposite of that. Um, I don't want to go into too many details on this, but basically, your experience is composed of two things, or three things actually. The results of past karma, your present intentions, and the result of your present intentions. All these things, things coming together, that's your present experience. And since past karma, you've, you've done many, many things in the past. It's like you have a field of seeds, and the different seeds are sprouting at different rates. So any, potentially lots of different seeds could be sprouting at any one time in your field. And your act of attention and intention in the present moment is basically watering certain seeds. So you have the choice that certain seeds you're going to water and other seeds you're not. For instance, you're sitting here meditating. There's no always having you focus on the comfortable parts of the body, the parts of the body you can make comfortable, make comfortable through the breath. And you would create a certain pleasant, pleasant feeling out of that. You could have spent all of your time focusing on the pains in your body, focusing on you know, other issues outside, and you could, it would be the same present potentials, but you were turning them into something else by the way you're paying attention. And so <clears throat> what the Buddha is teaching here is that you know, even though there are things coming in from the past that do play, play a large role in shaping a lot of your life, what you do with those things is up to you in the present moment. So you do have this freedom of choice. Based on that, that's mundane right view. And then from there you develop mundane right view into noble right view, first by acting on, on this principle of conviction in the principles of common rebirth. You know, they have those classes where you say, suppose you had one year left to live, how would you live your life? 
you really ought to do a class. Suppose you really believed in karma and rebirth for one year. <laughs> Live as if you really believed in it. See what it would do to your life. You take more responsibility for your actions, you start thinking out longer term. Um, and the Buddha is basically saying, you know, it's, it's a good working hypothesis to take on. You can't prove karma and rebirth to anybody. Because if you take it on as a working hypothesis, you will find that your actions will change for the better. So that's taking on mundane right view as, as an introductory principle. Now the Buddha has you develop from mundane right view to noble right view, which is view in, roots in terms of the Four Noble Truths. Um, and one of the standard ways he, had, he does this is he, give, he gave to many people what was called a graduated discourse. Now, for most of us, when we learned Buddhism in college, the first thing we learned was the Four Noble Truths, right? There are a lot of times when the Buddha would not start out with the Four Noble Truths. He would start out with this graduated discourse. And basically, it's using the principle of karma to prepare the mind to be receptive to the Four Noble Truths. He starts out, he would give a talk on giving, how good it is to give. Secondly, from there, he would talk about virtue, how good it is to observe the precepts. From there, he would talk about heaven. One of the rewards of being virtuous and being generous is that you get to go to heaven. Okay, sounds nice. Then he would talk about the drawbacks, degradation, and defilement of sensuality. The, you know, heaven, you know, a lot of those heavenly realms, they're, they're pretty much immersed in sensuality. Although different realms are more immersed than others. There's a story in the canon of this one woman who provided meals for these two monks for many, many years. She died, they died. She goes to one of the higher levels of heaven and she wants to check out, where did my monks go? And she finds them among the Gandharvas. Now the Gandharvas are the teenagers of the, of the heavenly world. They like fast cars, music, and sex, you know. <laughs> I personally think that UFO sightings are actually the Gandharvas messing with people's minds. Because um, that's the other thing they like to do, is they like to mess with people's minds. Um, so she, go, she goes down and says, look, I did not feed you all those years, so you become Gandharvas and just have all the time with sex and music and fast cars. And one of them gets embarrassed, and so he goes off and meditates and gets reborn as a higher deva. And the other one is just too enjoying in what he's doing that they even listen. So, so the Buddha first talks about how nice it is to be in heaven, but then he says, okay, there are these drawbacks. Look at what sensuality does to you. You got up to heaven and you get immersed in sensuality, but it doesn't last. It's going to end. And then when you fall, you fall hard. And so after he's talking about what is it, the drawbacks, degradation, you can think of all the degrading things you've done because under the influence of sensuality. Finally gets to the rewards of renunciation, that would be good to give up sensual desires to be entirely. And once, he's got, once you've got seeing that renunciation would be a good thing, then he would teach the Four Noble Truths. So this is how the Buddha would have you progress from mundane right view into the Four Noble Truths. In other words, taking the principle of karma and showing that it does give good results, but the results within the processes of samsara are limited. And also many times the rewards are actually not things you would want. I mean, you think about, you know, they, they say about people want to be good looking, they want to be wealthy, they want to have a long life, they want to be wealth, powerful. Look at the people who are good looking. Or the stupid things they do because they were good looking. And the things that people do to them because they're good looking. Look at the stupid things that people with power do. Look at the stupid things that people with wealth do, often. I mean, the wealth turns around and, and harms them. There was an Ajahn in Thailand who got like to give a Dharma talk. He said, you know, you have to realize in Thailand, 
people don't come to Buddhism first through meditation. They come to Buddhism first through generosity. And so he says, people who are generous but don't observe the precepts, don't practice meditation, have a good chance of being reborn as a dog in an American house. (laughs) 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 If you are generous and you observe the precepts but don't meditate, you have a good chance of being born as a human being and wealthy, but the fact that you didn't meditate means you would not have the wisdom to use your wealth wisely. And your wealth might actually come back and harm you. If you want to be safe, you have to do all three. Generous, virtuous, and meditating. Have the wisdom to use these things well. So lots of drawbacks even to heaven. And so once you see that, you say, well, maybe it would be better just to get out of the cycle entirely. Just sort of swear off the, the desire for our sensual pleasures. And the mind that thinks that is ready for the Four Noble Truths. So this is how the Buddha would have you progress from mundane right view to views in terms of the Four Noble Truths. Any questions on that? You mentioned the gradu- uh, term. That yeah, the is graduated discourse. discourse. Or is it it, the funny thing is, it's, it's said that the Buddha gave this graduated discourse. It doesn't go into a lot of the details. It just said he talked about giving and then virtue and then heaven. It's a standard formula. Where, where is it, though? It's mentioned, um, Majjhima 56 just mentions it. Uh-huh. Um, there's, several, there's several places in the Vinaya where it's mentioned. When I did the book Refuge, I tried to go through the canon and pull out passages that would, where the Buddha is talking about giving and is talking about virtue, right. and try to assemble what may have been talked about in that discourse. Um, the interesting thing is there's very little about heaven in the Pali Canon. It just says, think about a, a world-turning a world turning emperor and how many pleasures he has. And they said, there's nothing compared to the pleasures of heaven. That's it. Question? Well, going through all of that and then not being available to the noble truths would be a big disappointment. Right. Mm-hmm. And so um, this whole question of sensuous desire, mm-hmm. um, I, I've had some challenge with it because I'm deeply drawn to... To I'm a, mm-hmm. to, I'm a pianist. Mm-hmm. I love mm-hmm. art. Mm-hmm. I love the taste of food. Mm-hmm. These are the these are the great pleasures of life, mm-hmm. and so I, I need I need some clarity around this because I I don't think he was saying you know to eliminate these. No, you don't eliminate the pleasures. I mean, when he talks about sensuality, he's talking about the mind's tendency to just think about these things all the time. You know, think about the meal. You know, you can sit and you, you've got the restaurant you want to go to tonight, and you can spend the whole day thinking about, well, I'll order the cod. No, I don't want to order the cod. I'd rather order the tofu supreme. I mean, you know. So it's the, it's the, it's the, the duration, uh, really. I, I mean, if it becomes a preoccupation. It becomes your preoccupation. And, you know, you think about eating. You know, you're, if, you, know you plan the restaurant you're going to go to, and then you actually get to the restaurant and you have the meal. It doesn't take that much time. And the actual taste of the food isn't all that lasting. It's all right. while it's on your tongue, and that's it. Yeah. And then you go home and you think about, well, wasn't that a great meal? And you can think about that until you go to sleep. You know? Yeah, okay. That's sensuality. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> I had a dream one time. And it's it, it, funny, the dream was, it, it was one of those dreams that came with instant interpretation. It was sent sensual world, and it was this tenement. And you go into the tenement, and there were two kinds of people in the tenement. There were the dreamers lying in their rooms dreaming, and then there were the thugs prowling the hallways. 
That's a sensual world. Hmm. It's like that video that I heard about recently. There this, there's this factory in China where they work the people 12 hours, or 18 hours a day, and they have to live upstairs out of the factory, and every, every worker has a little sort of bunk. Bed. And they get back to their bunk, and they immediately get online, and they start playing these reality games with other people. And then things have gotten so intense in these reality games, or virtual reality games, that they actually take out contracts for other people to beat up the person who's, you know, beating them on, online. Um, sensual world. <laughs> Any other questions? Is mundane right view uh, consisted, uh, c- does it consistently in, uh, uh, in accepting a form of uh, life after death or specific teaching that the Buddha gave of rebirth without a persisting entity? Well, that doesn't come into that doesn't come into the mundane right view about the question of a persistent entity or not. Uh-huh. It comes more under the Four Noble Truths. But it's specifically um, the Buddhist cosmology. You know, remember the heavens and hells we're talking about? They're not eternal, and that's an important part of the right view. I see. Because you think about it, you know, the, the view that at the, after this lifetime there will be an eternity, either of eternal bliss or an eternal damnation. Now you know, well, you know, you know for sure that. No action you do in this lifetime could merit either eternal bliss or eternal damnation. Right. Which means that your actions ultimately have no bearing on that, that you know, your fate. Okay. Because the, the wording uh, is very interesting. It just says, there is this world and there is the other world, which only seems to indicate a sort of life after death, but it doesn't specifically say... Oh, they talk say about spontaneous beings as well. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Your human beings don't arise spontaneously. Right. You don't open your door in the morning. Oh, child. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, then, uh, in the uh, mundane right view, is there? Uh, so this, you said that 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 uh, aspect of uh, persistent not, uh, rebirth without persisting entity part is actually a more refined form. It's more. You said it's closer to the noble. When you, st- when you start discussing you know, the mechanics of rebirth, that's oh. when you're getting into the Four Noble Truths. I see. This just says karma is what plays a role. I see. Okay. Thank you. Okay, let's move on to the Four Noble Truths. Okay, there's two main issues about the Four Noble Truths. I mean, it, it is a focus on the problem of suffering. Specifically, the suffering we cause ourselves. But in focusing on this problem, the Buddha is not just telling us four interesting things about the problem of suffering. He's also saying that this is the most important problem to solve. Why are, why are we causing ourselves unnecessary suffering? So it's a question of priorities. And that also means that there are many questions that the Buddha is not going to answer. Number one is, what are you? doesn't answer that question. Is the world eternal? Is it not eternal? How did the world begin? Not answered. And a lot of the questions that you know, consume philosophy and religion in the West, the Buddha said, waste of time. He said, we focus here on this problem because this is the number one problem. So as you, as you accept the Four Noble Truths, it's not just accepting what he's saying about suffering, but also the importance of 
working on this problem. Um, and essentially the Four Noble Truths, as I said, are not just four interesting facts about suffering. They're categories for dividing your experience. You look at something, okay, where is the stress here? What's causing the stress? What craving and clinging is causing the stress? What qualities of mind and, and body do I have to develop in order to be able to put an end to that cause? So each of these things carries a duty. The duty with regard to stress and suffering is to comprehend it. That means actually understanding it to the point of dispassion for it. Now we don't tend to think that we're passionate about our suffering, although we can be. We don't like it, but we can be pretty passionate about suffering. Um, but the Buddha says, and, but the other problem is that we tend to either try to push it away or run away from it ourselves. And the Buddha says, no, you're not going to get away from it that way. You have to understand it first before you can let it go. So the duty with regard to suffering is to comprehend it. The duty re with regard to the cause is to let it go, to abandon it. The duty with regard to the cessation of suffering is to realize it, to bear witness to it. In other words, see it's actually happening. So when you do let go of craving, suffering goes away. Now this is, this is not what usually happens. We let go of one craving. Why? Because we're picking up another craving. We don't notice, okay, as I drop that craving, the initial craving, there was some stress that went away because we're too busy going after the next one. So we have to stop. Notice, okay, when I let go of that craving, there is a release of, in the mind, however temporary it may be. Ultimately, of course, you want to get to, well, what is the letting go that's going to find total release from suffering? But to get there, then there's the duty with regard to the path, which we're talking about today, which is to develop it. You have to bring these things into being. So in terms of stress or suffering, I use the word stress for several reasons. One is that I had a friend back in Bangkok who's a journalist. He asked, you know, why, why do you Buddhists talk about suffering all the time? I don't have any suffering in my life. I said, do you have any stress? Oh yeah, a lot of stress. That's what we're talking about. <laughs> Two, it's really hard to romanticize stress. People tend to romanticize their sufferings a lot, but it's hard to romanticize your stress. So thinking about it in terms of stress helps pull you back from it a little bit. And then finally, you know, some of the aspects of the path, like itself, will involve some stress, like right concentration. It's really hard to say that you're suffering when you're sitting there with rapture and, and pleasure, but there is an element of stress, and that's what you're going to be looking for. So it's good to remember that it can be very, very subtle. So that's one of the reasons I tend to use the word stress. But the Buddha defines suffering. You've probably heard this characterization. The Buddhism, you know, Buddhism says life is suffering. That's not what the Buddha said. If you'd said life is suffering, it wouldn't have been very helpful. You put an end to suffering, what means you put an end to life? You know? Which is not what he's talking about. He says you're suffering because it's clinging to the five aggregates. First he goes through and he mentions the different kinds of things that are suffering, aging, illness, and death, not getting what you want, being together with what you don't like, being separated from what you do like, things we all know. But then he goes on to say, five clinging aggregates, and you say, huh? Five clinging aggregates, it's not something that you, you know, would immediately think of. Um, just to give you a very brief rundown, you've got five aggregates are these. Form, which is the body, or your internal sense of the body, or any physical object. 
feeling, the feeling tones of pleasure, pain, neither pleasure nor pain. Perception, which is the images, the labels you place in your mind on things. Fabrications, which here fabrications mean thought fabrications, you're thinking about things, what we call verbal fabrication just now. And then finally consciousness, your awareness of all the six, all six senses. And the question is, why did the Buddha define experience into these five categories? And the best answer I can come up with is that, think about when you're feeding. These five categories are all involved in the act of feeding. Once there's, you've got the form of your body, which you want to maintain, and there's the form of the food out there that you're going to feed on. Secondly, there's the feeling of hunger that you want to assuage, and then there's the feeling of fullness that you're trying to attain. Perception has to do with perceiving, okay, what out there can I eat? And you notice when little kids explore the world, what is their first question? They may not even ask, but what do they do? If they find something new, what do they do? They stick it in their mouth. <laughs> and that's how we learn, okay? Your marbles are not edible. Um, certain things are edible, but you learn how to perceive what out there is food and what's not food. Perception also plays a role in perceiving what kind of hunger do I have? Am I hungry for something salty or am I hungry for something sweet? Um, am I hungry for anything at all? That's perception. Fabrication is figuring out, okay, I've got this raw potato, what do I do with it so I can eat it? And you have to work out, okay, this is how you find it, this is how you prepare it, this is how you eat it. Um, and then finally, consciousness is your awareness of all these things. And so basically, these are the ways we engage in the world. Primarily, as the Buddha said many, many times, we engage in the world by feeding on it in various ways. This, just what is described now, of course, is physical feeding, but there's also emotional and mental feeding off of things. And he wants us to see that all these, ag these aggregates are involved in that. And then we feed off of the aggregates. That's what the word clinging means, is to feed. In other words, not only do we, this gets back to your question, not only do we feed off the pleasure, but we feed off the idea. We feed off, okay, I've, you know, I've got this really nice artichoke, why am I going to fix it tonight? And you think, well, I could, I could grill the artichoke, or I could do this to the artichoke, and you start feeding off of, you know, what a great cook I am, I can do all these various things with the artichoke. There's a feeding that goes on there. And the that we suffer because of that, because of the way we want to feed on things. So that's how we define suffering. The cause of suffering is clinging and craving, and the craving comes in four, three times. There's craving of sensuality. We want to be able to enjoy this thinking about things. It's the sensual pleasures. Craving for becoming. Craving, now, becoming here is basically your identity within a particular world of experience. And this can happen on the macro level, like you know, your identity as a person here in this room right now, or here on this planet, or here in this, in this country. Um, but also, there's an, as a thought world arises in the mind, many times we go into that thought world and we take on an identity there. And in that particular thought world, certain parts of the external world will be relevant and certain parts will not. Even on the external level, say you, you develop this, and all these things develop around a desire. We want something in particular. And this is one of the Buddha, as the Buddha said, this is one of the reasons why we're born in the human realm. We wanted to be human beings. We thought, wouldn't it be cool to be an American in the you know, 20th, 21st century? Get to play with all those electronics. <laughs> or whatever whatever attracted us. 
but even in, in just kind of micro, microcosms of becoming, as you think your way through the day, you decide, okay, I want to have some chocolate. Now, once that desire takes on, you take on the desire, then the question is, okay, your identity then develops into the person who wants the chocolate, the person who will be satisfied by the chocolate when you gain it, and also the person who has the ability to gain the chocolate. That's your identity around that desire. And other aspects of you at that moment, you know, your, your you know, other relationships, other duties you may have in life, they get pushed off to the side. They're not a part of that world. And then, of course, the world around you then becomes relevant. What's standing between me and my chocolate? And what is going to help me get the chocolate? Those are the relevant aspects of that world of becoming. So, for instance, right now, the fact that you're sitting here and there are all these people here, you'd be embarrassed to get up in the middle of the day and just walk out, get the chocolate. So these people are suddenly becoming an obstacle to your chocolate. So they become relevant. Um, at the end of the day, they're totally irrelevant. There's no longer an issue. You go straight to the chocolate shop. And you, the producer who is able to produce the money, you then become you, the consumer who consumes the chocolate. That's, that's that becoming around chocolate, the chocolate desire. And if you notice, you look at your mind carefully, you go through many becomings in the course of the day. You pick up this desire and then you drop it for that desire, either because you drop it, either because you're bored with that desire or because when something else comes in, it becomes more interesting. The problem is many times we'll have you know, conflicting desires. You know, the desire to maintain your relationship with your partner as opposed to the desire and you see somebody down the road who looks really, really cool and you start lusting for that other person. Okay, those are conflicting becomings. You've got to do something about that. And this is a lot of what we suffer about, is there's so many conflicting becomings that we want to take on. I think this is one of the reasons why people in the Bay Area in particular are particularly driven crazy, because of the human potential movement told you that you can excel in all areas of life, and that you're, you know, there's something wrong with you if you're not you know, politically correct, socially correct, sexually correct, um, wealthy, spiritual, all these things all at once. And it, it, it drives people crazy because you can't do all those things. We have so many conflicting demands placed on us. So that's becoming. And then non-becoming is you find yourself taking on a particular becoming and you want to destroy it. You, know, you get committed to a particular desire and it, and it gets more and more involved and more and more committed to it and maybe you realize, I don't like this. You want to destroy that particular becoming. Now that actually creates another becoming, because you become the destroyer of the becoming. All of these things lead to suffering. The end of suffering is basically learning how to abandon those cravings, and knowing that you're doing it. As the Buddha said, you, you develop dispassion, um, lack of nostalgia for the craving. Not only do you say dispassion for the craving right now, but you don't think about, boy, wasn't it wonderful back when I had that desire? You begin to realize, I don't want that desire ever again. That's when you really let go of it. And then the fourth, the fourth noble truth, of course, is the path which you have to develop, and that's what we're going to be discussing for the rest of the day. Okay. So those are the four noble truths in brief. And then we have five minutes, we're going to discuss the ultimate right view. <laughs> okay, ultimate right view, in John Munn's words, is that every th all four noble truths get reduced to one. 
Everything is just stress arising and passing away. Anything that arises is stress, everything passing away is stress. Um, the way the Four Noble Truths lead to this, in addition to developing all factors of the path to, the, to get to the point where the mind has developed the concentration and the powers of mindfulness to be able to let go of everything, um, is that you start looking at other views, you start looking at other views in terms of actions. In other words, when you see someone holding on to a view, say that the world is eternal or the world is not eternal, or whatever, you see that, okay, there is a clinging and there is a craving involved in holding on to that view. And you're going to be suffering if you hold on to that view. So you let it go. And you do this with all other forms of wrong view. And then finally you learn to turn on to right view itself. And you say, okay, if I cling to this, if I'm craving this view too, there will be a problem. Now if you try to let go of the Four Noble Truths as right view too early, you're back to really nothing. But if you do this at the right point in the development of, the, of, your, of your path, when the path is fully developed, you let go of the path itself and then that's when the mind can open up to something that's unfabricated. So it's in this way that the Four Noble Truths kind of lead you eventually to their transcendence. In other words, you look at everything else out there in terms of stress and the cause of stress, but you, you, you keep the path going until everything that's not related to the path has been let go of, and then you turn onto the path itself and let that go. And that's when you can gain um, total dispassion. One more th point before we, before we break for lunch. The question often comes, as we talk about right view in any of the levels, how do the three characteristics relate to right view? And the answer is, one, the Buddha never talked about three characteristics, he talked about three perceptions. You learn to perceive things as inconstant, you learn to perceive things as stressful, you learn to perceive things as not-self. In other words, you apply this perception to these things in order to develop dispassion. And when you're on the different levels of right view, these perceptions are applied in different ways. On mundane right view, You hold on to the fact that your karma is your own. You don't quite let go of that idea yet. What you do let go of is to your attachment to other things that would, make, that would pull you away from creating skillful karma. In other words, you're, you're, you're tempted to have an affair, and you realize, mm, that's inconstant, stressful, and not self. That temptation. You find yourself tempted to do something skillful, you hold on to that. In other words, you're selective in how you apply the three characteristics. Anything that would tempt you to do something unskillful, you've got to say, okay, this desire is inconstant, it's going to be, it's, the desire itself is stressful, it's going to lead to bad results, I better let it go. When you get into the terms of noble uh, and for, for noble truths as the level of right view, excuse me, let me, for, let me back up a bit. One of the things the Buddha has you focus on is that if you, a loss of wealth, a loss of relatives, a loss even of your health is better than loss of your precepts and loss of your right view. That's pretty radical. You know, it, you'd be better to hold on to your precepts even at the expense of you know, alienating some of your, your relatives um, and the expense of maybe having to lose some money. Uh, even if it meant losing some of your health, you better hold on to your precepts. Because in the long term, that's, that's what belongs to you, as opposed to these things which you're going, you're going to be losing at some point anyhow. Um, 
under the Four Noble Truths, um, each of the Four Noble Truths has plays a different role with the in, in application of these three perceptions. Um, if anything is suffering, okay, you notice that it's suffering, you apply the three perceptions to let it go. Any of the causes of suffering, you would apply those three perceptions to that, to see that this particular craving here is nothing I want to get involved with. It's important to realize that when the Buddha is teaching these three perceptions, that one and not self, he's not saying there is no self, because the question is, if something is stressful, if something is inconstant, is it worth taking on as yourself, as your own? And the answer is no. The Buddha never asked you to come to the conclusion there is no self. He's basically saying, is the activity of identifying with this worth it? And if you can see that, no, it's not worth it, then you let it go. That's what the, that's that, what the teaching on not-self is all about. With the path, as you're on the path, you learn to re review anything that's not on the path in terms of these three characteristics. Anything that would pull you off the path, this is, these are good perceptions to apply to whatever might pull you off. But you don't apply them to the path yet. For example, when you're dealing with when you're trying to develop concentration, any distraction comes up, you've got to say, this is impermanent, this is stressful, I've got to let it go. And then figure out whatever the most effective way of letting it go might be. It's only when you get to the ultimate level of right view, where you see all things arising as stress, and you have only one duty at that point, which is just to let go. That's where you apply the three perceptions to everything that's inconstant. And in doing so, you develop dispassion for everything. And that, that is what allows you to gain awakening. So can we go for a little few more minutes? Get some questions? Yeah. Because mm -hmm. I don't want to just say, okay, time for lunch. Because <laughs> I gave you an awful lot of material. Sorry. I want to make sure that people have digested it. Chris? I'm just thinking about this idea of, of letting go of clinging to the path. I would understand that as that clinging is, a, is some kind of action. Mm -hmm. And that if you really look at a moment of clinging to the path, there's got to be some kind of mental or physical fabrication going on in that moment, mm -hmm. and that itself is what's stressful. So what, mm -hmm. it, what, what it means to not cling to the path is not to give it up or start disagreeing with it or anything like that, right? But just to, just to um, let go of needing to actually make that action of clinging to it. Well, you're going to have to hold on to these things pretty strongly in order to develop them. Yeah, right. I'm talking about how to understand, I understand that, yeah. but how to understand what that the, At the very end, um, what it comes down to is you, you get the mind to a point where, say you're in a state of concentration, you realize if I stay here, there's going to be stress, but if I move on to another level of concentration, that move on someplace else, that is also going to be stressful. Is there an alternative between staying and moving? And that's when it gets radical. Yeah, right. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, you know, the whole thing about climbing to the top of the flagpole right. and letting go. Right. You don't let go just of the flagpole. You also have to let go of gravity. Right. Okay. Right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, right. <laughs> now I see. Right. Apology? Chris, can you move the, send the mic back? When you talked about uh, the most refined form of right view uh, in terms of uh, letting go of everything, um, it sounded a little uh, interesting to me because uh, you're talking about even letting go of stress. But uh, so far as I understand, the 12-fold formula is that you 
comprehend stress you let go of the cause of stress mm-hmm. am i missing something here okay um when you're dealing with four, four noble truths you've got four different duties when they collapse into one there's only one duty and this is where letting go and comprehending come together because comprehending as the, as the Buddha says ultimately has to lead to dispassion and that dispassion is what lets go so this is full comprehension of the stress so there's another, another way in which those four categories collapse so in that case at that point the proper co- uh, comprehension would be this is worthy of letting go right Okay. That's, that's you know they have that statement that the Buddha taught to Moggallana: all things are unworthy of attachment. He's talking to Moggallana on the verge on the verge of arahantship. At that point, that has meaning. Now, we're, as we're struggling, we're still struggling with mundane right view and and four noble truths. Don't let them go. You know? Right. So that's why it probably made sense to the first five disciples when he said. Uh, he talked of all the uh, all the clinging aggregates one by one, and he said, "These are all not self." Mm-hmm. Uh, it probably makes sense to them, but uh, for us, at least, we need to use at least some form of fabrications right. to to get to the point where mm-hmm. we could do something similar. Right. Which is why, on the earlier stages of the path, you don't apply the three perceptions to everything. Like you say, oh, I had a moment of concentration, the moment of concentration left, well, all things are in you know, constant stress on that cell. That doesn't get you anywhere. Okay, one last question on mm-hmm. perceptions. The, the, you, you raised one interesting example about, uh, per, uh, about uh, possibility of uh, having an affair with somebody or such kind of thing, and, and applying the three perceptions of, of uh, uh, anicca dukkhanata. But... Uh, would it not be a little more appropriate to use the perception of danger? Uh, in that's, kind of that's, that's, that's what comes under stress. Oh, okay. Yeah. It's, this is dangerous. Okay. There's lots of bad things can happen. Yeah. Okay. All right. Okay. And, and uh, the becoming part, uh, which you, which you uh, explained in great detail, uh, is that somewhat like a fantasizing about something or... Uh, Considering the different alternatives that are there in front of us uh, before making one final decision and saying, okay, this is what I'm going to do. Mm-hmm. And considering, okay, I, I want to take this, if I, if I were to take this option, these are the pluses and minuses. Mm-hmm. If I were to take this option, this, so is that, is that the becoming? Uh, the becoming is when you have, even when you start having the alternatives listed in front of you, you're already becoming. I am the chooser of the alternative. There's a desire that's even driving that, that choice. Okay. And then you go into a particular one, okay, and then you take on that particular detailed part of it. So any identity is becoming, okay. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd like to go back and talk to, uh, and uh, have you talk about uh, sensuality and craving. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is in relationship maybe to you know, artists, for example, who are oftentimes so consumed about whatever they're writing or painting or, or building a cabinet or designing a house, etc. Well, they're really, you know, they're really uh, into this and mm-hmm. it consumes them. Isn't this you know, part of life? I mean, it, I mean, so much of what we uh, like and find that's beautiful in the world mm-hmm. is oftentimes a product of someone 
you know, being consumed. And um, isn't this, you know, uh, part of life? Yeah, well, the path is also kind of becoming. To follow the path is you're taking on the becoming of being a person who's following the path. And the, Buddha, the Buddhist strategy here is, okay, this is a skillful kind of becoming. Say, practicing right concentration. So he's not, he's not saying, okay, you just don't do anything at all. But you've got to be careful about what kind of identity am I taking on? What kind of world do I enter into when I take on that becoming? Is it worth it? And I guess a lot of artists would say yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. And as long as you find it worth it, go ahead. But also remember, there's, there comes a point. I mean, I saw this with my father. I mean, one of his ways of dealing with his second wife was to go down into a shop and work on... And he, and he created lots and lots of furniture in the last years of his life. <laughs> And we're all benefiting from that now, all the kids in the family. But there came a point where he couldn't do that anymore. He developed Parkinson's, and I mean, he had this really nasty accident where he had one of those fainting spells, and he happened to grab the ra- uh, to grab the planer and cut off a couple of ends of his fingers. But then the fact that he couldn't go down and do that anymore—that really is really frustrating. So every artist has to deal with the fact that come, there may come a point where I can't play the piano anymore and I can't do the carpentry anymore. What will I be able to fall back on? Which is why you need a fallback. This is one of the things that meditation provides for you. Is even when you're dying, you can still have the you can still focus on your breath. You know? So you say, okay, I'll take on these becomings as long as that they're useful. But I need another kind of becoming which will give me a safe place to be when I can no longer find the satisfaction that comes from you know, producing that work of art, or producing that cabinet, or producing that building. And the path, and the path is fabricated, and the path is a kind of becoming. But it's a becoming that leads to the end of becoming. Just as the Buddha said, it's a kind of karma, but it's the, it leads to the end of karma. So it's a, it's a question of, is it worth it? In fact, that's what the three characteristics, or three perceptions are all about. Here's the stress, here's the suffering. Is it worth it? And some seem to say, okay, it's stressful and it's inconstant, but in the long run, it's going to be worth putting this effort in. And that's okay. That's okay. Yeah. Um, I have a problem with a concept that you mentioned earlier that all things are unworthy of attachment. Mm -hmm. Um, As a mother, I feel like I'm very attached to my daughter, Mm -hmm. and I think it's worth it. Mm -hmm. So I don't know how to switch my mind to be... be There. ...in such a way that, (laughs) you know, everything is unworthy of attachment. Okay, that that teaching is relevant for someone who's about to become an arahant. Okay, I'm far from it. <laughs> <laughs> you, you let off the hook, okay. <laughs> okay. And up until that point, you're not, you know, that teaching is not for you. In fact, it's probably not for anybody in the room right now. But, but it, uh, there will come a day when that will be a relevant teaching. In the meantime, the Buddha says, hold on, like the image of the raft. If you're going to get across the river, you've got to hold on to the raft. Okay. You're responsible for that child, okay, hold on to the child. But remember having the back of your mind. I need to prepare for the time when we get, when you know we part from each other, and you know, try to develop the skills that will enable you to survive that. 
without suffering. I'm just curious that um, did Buddha talk about what happens when people kind of let go of most of the mundane and the subtle stuff? So did he say, like, then what? Like, you know, like an arhat lets go? Well, there's, there's an experience of the deathless. And the first taste of it is called stream entry, and we'll be talking about that toward the end of the day. But basically what it means, you realize there is a dimension that, that you can be aware of where it's outside of space and time. And then you come back from that experience, and that changes your relationship to space and time, because you saw how you took it apart. So you have some insight into what goes into the fabrication there. And one of the results of that is you never break the precepts intentionally. And there are other, other results as well. Thank you. Mm-hmm. One last question. With my own children, I've noticed uh, that there's attachment and then there's attachment. Mm-hmm. And uh, like I would do anything for them, and their happiness is very important to me. But previously, I had a kind of attachment that was um, obsessive and neurotic. Mm-hmm. Um, They've had difficulties of various kinds, and I was just obsessed in um, grasping at getting them, at helping them, things like that. And I find that when I have the more healthy kind of attachment, then I, I'm able to help them more, mm-hmm. and I'm able to do better for them. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, as I said, you, know, you look after the kids, but you also have to be prepared for, I'm going to have to leave them someday, so what's the best thing to leave them with? Many times it's, you know certain things you know you can do for them, other things you say, they'd be better off if I didn't do that for them. Or you have to see, I'll let them, I have to see them, watch them struggle for a while, let them learn what it's like to struggle so that they know how to deal with difficulties on their own when I can't be here for them. And that changes the quality of the attachment. Okay, should we break for lunch? We'll come back after the meal.